We're going to open up a book now which looks at human experiences during supremely difficult times. A new anthology collects wartime stories from academics at NUI Galway. It covers a range of stories from across Europe that illustrate the human impact of the Second World War and what those experiences mean to subsequent generations. The book is called Family Histories of World War II, Survivors and Descendants. It's published by Bloomsbury Academic and I'm joined now by the editors of the Anthology. Dr. Roisin Healy and Dr. Garoj Barry are both historians at NUI Galway, specialists in modern Germany and in uh, France, respectively. And Roisin, it's a it's a truly international publication, uh, touching on a lot of countries across Europe and also the the USA. How did it come about? Well, the idea came about really in 2019 as the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II was approaching. And I had been involved in another book on family memory dealing with the Irish Revolution a couple of years before that. And it struck me that it was a model that could be rolled out for World War II as well asking people across the university to contribute family histories that they had collected themselves of World War II. And myself and my colleague Garrod, as you said, are European historians, so we're in the classroom every day talking about the war and we thought it would be great to get some individual stories, how the the war impacted on individuals and their families as opposed to the, the sort of the macro picture that we often end up telling in the classroom. Garage, the book is divided into two parts. Part one is lives in uniform, enduring combat and captivity, obviously dealing with those who were personally involved uh, on the sharp end of the war, the fighting. Part two is lives under siege, coping with occupation. But you found a real wealth, and this is one of the, the really astonishing things for me anyway about the book, a real variety of stories just by asking staff in NUI Galway, a very, very small sample indeed. And I suppose it shows how many stories are out there just under our noses. Absolutely, Miles. Uh, you're quite right. I suppose it's also a testament as well to the diversity and the multinational nature in general of our of our campus that all these stories were out there, including, of course, uh, not by any means disregarding stories coming from Irish people as well. When we kind of took up this stone and all these wonderful things came out and, and came towards us, we were actually put in the difficult position of actually having to make choices. Um, there were more stories than this came to us, but the choices we made, as you say there, citing the section uh, headings, was on the basis of representativity to show something of the diversity of experience of those who were fighting and those who were affected by fighting in their civilian capacity as well. Now, some of the stories, as you would imagine, are quite dark, quite hard to read. But uh, Roisin, the story of Maureen Maloney of uh, NUI Gobi and her sister Colleen Maloney-Williamson, um, perhaps one of the less dark stories, uh, shared that story with us about the wartime adventures of their father. Yeah, that's certainly a very uplifting story. So it deals with their father, Thomas Joyce Maloney, who was an American who enlisted in the Air Corps when he was just 18. And he ended up fighting in Europe in at the very end of the war in 1945. And he had to parachute out of a plane in northern Italy in January 1945. And he ended up being in the in the Alps on his own in the snow for a couple of days, really at the end of his wits, when a couple of uh, local Italians, two cousins, discovered him. 
and they and their broader families basically protected him for the rest of the war for another three months until the Americans came in and, and found him and, of course, were full of joy to, to find him. So the American then, Joyce Thomas Joyce Maloney, returned to America and spent many decades there, got married, had five children, really didn't talk very much about the war until one day they got a phone call from this Italian woman who was at a wedding nearby. And she said uh, she was, was, had asked a friend to, to, to find this Maloney in Pittsburgh. And so they were reunited. And then Thomas Maloney returned with his wife to the village of Condino in northern Italy, where the villagers had, uh, had protected him during the war. And they gave him a fabulous reception. The mayor, the whole town was out to welcome him because they were so proud of the, of the, 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 the work that they had done to protect him from the Germans, a great personal cost to themselves. But the story doesn't end there because Maloney died then in 2010 and the, the children felt that they wanted to find out even more about his experiences there. And they decided the five siblings to make a visit to Condino, Italy and essentially had the same experience as, as their parents going over, being given a civic reception, being shown a film about the episode during the war. And it was an enormously meaningful experience for them all as they reunited with the people who had protected their father. And Garage English lecturer in NUIG, Irina Rupo, wrote about her Russian-Jewish grandmothers. Tell me their story, if you would. Uh, yes, indeed, Miles. As we know, during the 900 or so day siege of Leningrad uh, between uh, late 1941 and early 1944, about an estimated 1.5 million people died of hunger. And living there in the, that first awful winter were uh, Lucia and Raya Greenberg, who were the sisters and also the grandmothers of our colleague uh, Irina Ruppo. And uh, the mainstay of Arena's uh, chapter is based on a memoir which her granny Raya wrote later in the 1990s, living in Israel as a resettled member of Russia's Jewish community um, living in Israel. And there in her memoir, she provides a very vivid description of the war coming to Leningraders and of the privations of that first uh, winter in which their own mother and their grandmother went to extraordinary lengths to uh, protect them, gathering food, sunflower seed peels, eating your food crumb by crumb, so short was it. And then the confrontation that starts off as a bit of a lark, uh, with even air raids regarded as a bit of excitement by the children, becoming dreadfully serious with, you know, the grandmother's uh, body when she dies, being brought down and left outside to be carried away to a, a communal grave. And really, the children and their, their mother do manage to get out of the city in the spring of 1942 and then face a dreadful journey across the frozen wastes of the Soviet Union to Siberia. And at one stage, the grandmother comments that there are more good people than bad in the world because it is really the kindness of a random stranger that allows them to, to survive and helps the grandmother, Rhea, to regain her strength and regain the ability to walk. And then they're finally welcomed in Siberia by a cousin, uh, Sima, who kneels before them uh, as representatives of the martyred city of uh, Leningrad. And so what, what you see in this really is a story that continues to have meaning for a family 
that dispersed throughout the world, but also a family that suffers great tragedy after this. Uh, for the grandmothers and their families, the privations of the Leningrad siege had a long-term implication for the family. And indeed, in the case of one of the grandmothers, Lucia, she died in 2008 of complications brought on by chronic undereating so that it's evident that the siege and the experience during the war of the Greenberg sisters had long-term implications for their health and well-being. And Garage, in a warmer but also tragic theatre of war, that's Greece. One of the chapters is a Greek tragedy, small, a small village at uh, a war. Tell us about that small community in Greece. This is another very vivid contribution It's one of two in the book, actually, at least two that relate to experiences of occupation and resistance. And in the village of Platistomo in central Greece, our colleague Dinas, who Dinas Eftimu, who works as a chemist in NUI Galway, um, his parents live in that village. His father is a 20 year old who is recruited into ELAS, the communist resistance organisation. And his mother, Eleni, who is still living, uh, is a young girl who witnesses multiple occupations of their region, first by Italians, a relatively benign occupation, and then a much more brutal and fear-filled one by the German Wehrmacht from spring 1942 on in in their region. And of course, about 45,000 hostages, civilian hostages are shot by the Germans in Greece during the occupation. Uh, And some of that takes place in uh, Dinas's uh, region, in which you have partisan activity, You have areas in the mountains which are controlled to some degree by the communist partisans who then come down, stage attacks on the on the Germans, for which there is terrible retribution, including a moment when the villagers have to escape up into the hills. And some of the elderly people who are left in the village, including an elderly priest, are literally shot in their beds. So it's a story of uh, local uh, resistance and determination. And there are some uh, kind of prominent local figures as well who become uh, folk heroes in the resistance, both male and female. But at the end of the war, it's also tinged with sadness because, of course, this wasn't the end of conflict uh, in Greece. You have a civil war coming after that. And of course, the other thing to mention very poignantly is that you have the execution of some of the local German occupiers, but then uh, that's followed years later by the return visit of a son of one of these German officers who comes in a spirit of peace and who is greeted quite peaceably by the local population in spite of what had been a very brutal period. So uh, Dinas likes to end on a message of hope that his village is part of the wider story of European reconciliation after the Second World War as well. Roisin, Sylvie Mosse is a modern foreign language teacher originally from Belgium, but she looks at the experiences of her maternal grandparents. They're from Ukraine. That's right. Um, Sylvie's mother's parents came from Ukraine and had a particularly difficult experience during World War II and also afterwards. They were both taken separately as slave labourers to the Reich in 1942. So just two out of 12 million that were taken from all over Europe to work in Germany on farms and in factories. And they were treated abominably. Sylvie's grandmother, Alexandra, describes having very little to eat and having to literally eat the scraps laid out for the dogs. Her grandfather was slightly better off and, in fact, in a great act of love, gave her some of his own rations, uh, even though he too had, had very little 
they then found themselves at the end of the war in a bit of a dilemma because they were afraid to return to Ukraine. As bizarre as it sounds, the Soviets considered some of these slave labourers to be collaborators, even though they had been taken by force from Ukraine. So they were afraid of what might happen to them if they returned to Ukraine. So they decided then to go to a DP camp in Germany. And from there, they went on to Belgium. And in fact, Sylvie Massé's mother was born in that DP camp in 1946. What's particularly difficult about this story is the fact that both parents, both Alexandra and her husband, Vasily, had left families back in Ukraine. So she had left a daughter. She had been widowed. She'd also lost another daughter. um, But she left a daughter of just six years of age in Ukraine when she was sent to Germany. And Vasil also left um, a wife and and, and two sons. The, The wife subsequently died. And they continued on to Belgium then after the war with their their new daughter and made a life there for themselves. It was a very hard life. Um, Vassil was part of a programme that brought in refugees to work in the mines in Belgium, but was very stoic about it. And the author, Sylvie Mosse, then was the product of the marriage of their daughter, Anna, and a Belgian man. And she grew up in this Ukrainian community in Belgium, hearing the stories from her grandmother. And the grandmother tried again and again to get access to the daughter she had abandoned in Ukraine, tried to get access to a visa to get back into Ukraine to visit her. And for 30 years, she wasn't able to do that. And only in 1972 did the Ukrainian authorities finally relent and allow her visit. And that was, in fact, the only time she saw her her daughter. Her daughter had managed to, to survive, obviously, originally being looked after by uh, by relatives and then in, in a foster home. So it was a very emotional reunion for them. And then Alexandra wasn't permitted ever again to, uh, to visit her daughter. So that legacy of the war lasted then for, for decades afterwards. And Sylvie herself describes visiting her, her aunt, uh, her step-aunt, in Ukraine in 1986, um, at a time when the Berlin Wall still existed, there was still an Iron Curtain and spending four hours at the border um, having the car checked before she could go and visit her relations. So the, the relations between the family in Belgium and Ukraine were preserved, but under very difficult circumstances. In Garage and other of your colleagues, Marina Ansaldo talks about her Italian grandfather's experience in captivity. Tell us something about his story. Yes, indeed. And Marina Ansaldo's grandfather uh, was Marcello Cancellieri, whom she remembered as a benign and uh, loving uh, grandfather. But he, he had overcome terrible times during the war. Um, he was one of about 700,000 uh, Italian soldiers uh, who ended up effectively abandoned by their own government when the Italian government, king and government, deposed Mussolini in uh, 1943 and effectively switched sides. And as a result of this, the Germans were able to arrest, basically, uh, and take captive a whole load of of Italian soldiers who were left without clear orders. And we we get a very vivid description of a kind of an ill-fated last stand by Consiglieri and his fellow soldiers. He was an officer in the Alpini, the elite mountain unit of the Italian army who were located in Bolzano uh, near the border with, well, the German uh, Reich at that moment when the Germans came in. 
Really, what's very interesting about it is we've heard a lot in relation to Ireland in 1922 to the importance of oaths and how people took it so seriously, perhaps more seriously than people do nowadays. And uh, really, most of these men refuse the opportunities that are given to them repeatedly, both in Italy when they're taken in captive, but also in terrible, awful prison camps afterwards from Poland to Germany. Um, he and his comrades are given the chance to simply switch sides and to join the army of Mussolini's kind of continuity fascist regime, uh, German puppet, uh, the Salo Republic. And like most of his comrades, he refuses and he says something quite interesting. He says, they cannot release us from an oath with a couple of words. And because of that feeling of personal honour and because of the fact that he had taken an oath which he must abide by to the king and, and government of Italy, for two years or more, he and many others suffered terrible privations. They did show resilience. They did put aside some of their very meagre rations uh, to try and make an improvised Christmas cake, for example, in 1942 in the most dreadful circumstances. And also they refused a lot of food aid from outside agencies such as the Red Cross and the Vatican precisely because the Germans say that they are military internees, that their government had left them without a clear designation in terms of international law. And when they come back, uh, the men are really a national embarrassment for many people in Italy because of the way that the Italian armistice of 1943 had been mishandled. And it's, it's only now beginning to get uh, recognition. The other important thing as well is that these family stories, as well as their content, they're often meant to convey a moral meaning. And in the case of Marcello, it was to convey a sense of the importance of mental resilience to his own daughter, who was having a tough time in the 1970s when he wrote up his memoir on the basis of the notes that he had often written on wartime cigarette paper. And so he says in his memoir that no matter how bad things were physically and they were very bad, it was those who lost the spirit and lost the will that they were the ones who didn't come back to Italy. And so he's appealing to his daughter to similarly kind of reinvest in life and to take heart at that point in time. And so to the present day, the canteen, the decorated canteen decorated by fellow internees, which Consigliere had, remains a, a prized family possession for the Ansaldo family. And it, it's a beautiful object, which uh, we were lucky enough to reproduce as a photograph in the book, bearing the names of the uh, half dozen or so camps across Central Europe where Consigliere was a prisoner. Roisin, finally, an Irish story. Kira Boylan uh, has a PhD in history and teaches in Galway. She writes about her grandfather's service in the British Army. I think she was uh, slightly ambiguous about it when she began all of this. That's right. It's one of about three stories in the book that deal with Irish people in uh, the British Army during World War Two, which, of course, has long been a kind of a contentious theme that, that the Irish service in the British Army in both World One and, and Two. He ended up joining the British Dental Corps in 1937, just after he qualified as a, as a dentist in Ireland. And he went to various different theatres. He spent a lot of time in the Middle East and North Africa. He was working really in the POW camps, so people who were captured by the British. And he was examining those and also British soldiers themselves, um, making sure that they were fit for service. He also spent time in France and Belgium towards the end of the war. 
And in fact, one of the most interesting things that he did was he was called back to Europe after the end of the war to go to the Bergen-Belsen camp to help identify or at least assess the number of deaths there on the basis of dental records, literally looking at teeth extracted from uh, the ovens in Bergen-Belsen. So he had a he had a very interesting war and then he returned to Ireland and he wasn't at all ambiguous about his experience during the war. He was quite proud of it. But I think for many people, there was a sense of, of shame around it. Um, about 60,000 Irish people served in the British Army during World War II. And Kira herself felt a little embarrassed by it, that in some sense he wasn't fully Irish. He never felt that way. He was able to reconcile the two identities very easily and in fact said that the British Army treated him quite well and allowed him acknowledge his Irishness. And then later she went on to, to study history and indeed do a PhD in, in history in Oxford and was later working as part of the World War I Family History Roadshow um, on behalf of the National Library in 2012. And she met lots of Irish people who had memorabilia from ancestors who had served with the British Army in World War I. And she describes in the chapter how she then realised what a common experience it was and that it wasn't something that was un-Irish. In fact, it was representative of, of one strand of, of uh, Irish experiences in, in the 20th century and came to understand that, that it was indeed very feasible to reconcile Irish identity and service in the, in the British Army. Um, but it's, it's an interesting chapter in other ways too because we have this idea of war as being always horrific and in many ways it was and he experienced some terrible things but he also experienced moments of, of joy and leisure even. He describes duck shooting on the Nile and playing golf in Alexandria, swimming in the Suez Canal. Not, not things that we would associate with the war but opportunities that were there for people at certain moments in the war when things were quiet. So it's a very interesting story on lots of different levels. Well, this publication covers 13 stories altogether. We've touched on half a dozen or so of them this evening. The book, once again, is called Family Histories of World War II, Survivors and Descendants. It's published by Bloomsbury Academic. My guests are the editors, Dr. Roisin Healy and Dr. Garroge Barry. Thank you both very much indeed for joining us on The History Show this evening. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks tonight to Tommy O'Sullivan on sound and our researcher, Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.